Hey, how many of you in your Bibles, as a title under Acts, does it say Acts of the Apostles? How, how many of you does your Bible say that? Um, that's a poor title. Um, you, you can actually, if you want to, you can cross that out. Because actually what it should read is this. I'm, I'm kind of being joking a little bit there. Um, but what it should read is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. Because that's what we actually see happening in the book of Acts. It's the Holy Spirit working not just through the apostles, but through normal men and women just like us. And we see that God took normal men and women just like you and I, and God did a radical thing that impacted the entire world. Some important things, just by way of introduction, I want to bring to you some facts about the book of Acts. Um, The book of Acts serves as a bridge. The book of Acts is a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. In fact, imagine what your Bible would look like if, it, if you read the Gospel of John, the, the fourth Gospel that gives us the life of Jesus, and we see you know, him crucified and risen from the dead, and then you turn the next page, and it's the book of Romans. And you see this guy Paul you know, writing to the church in Rome, and you're thinking, who is Paul? How did these believers get in Rome? How did all that happen? The book of Acts is the bridge that tells us how that happened. How the, the word of God, how the gospel spread and churches were birthed in places like Rome and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth. We see that in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is also serves as a transition. The book of Acts is a transition from Judaism to Christianity, from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. And in the book of Acts, we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ being presented not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. It's, it's put forth to the whosoever will, and that includes beggars and kings and governors and Jews and Gentiles and rich and poor and bond and free and slave and master. In the, the book of Acts, we see the new covenant that Jesus came to establish being put forth to the world. In the book of Acts, we see a birthday. Because the book of Acts records for us the birth of the early church on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, something new and different came into existence. As the the church, the body of Jesus Christ was born and brought into existence by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we also see this incredible move of supernatural power. Acts gives us, you see, the expansion of the church, and the book of Acts chronicles a group of men and women who, under the power of the Holy Spirit, did not leave their world the way that they found it. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that this group of men and women actually turned the world upside down. And we'll see how it starts with 120 people gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. And 30 years later, the gospel has spread all around the world. So that at the end of the first century, it was estimated that there were millions of Christians at that time. And all of that happened without slick marketing campaigns, 
There was no social media. There was, it wasn't financed by wealthy investors. It, was the, it wasn't the result of a political popularity contest. It happened as normal people like you and I were empowered by the Spirit of God to do what Jesus told them to do, and that was to take the gospel and preach the word of God to all the world and make disciples of all nations, and that's exactly what they did. This work was started and it was sustained in the midst of great opposition by the power of God. I love what Griffith Thomas said about the book of Acts. He says, the book of Acts shows what the church can do in the face of opposition when it honors its Lord and is full of the Holy Spirit. I agree wholeheartedly with what Pastor Mark Batterson wrote when he said this, when Christianity turns into a noun, it becomes a turnoff. Christianity was always intended to be a verb, and more specifically, an action verb. The title of the book of Acts says it all, doesn't it? It's not the book of ideas or theories or words, it's the book of Acts. And then he said this, if the 21st century church said less and did more, maybe we would have the same kind of impact the first century church did. The book of Acts gives us this look, this supernatural look of the Spirit of God working through the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, when we start to talk about the Holy Spirit, And when we emphasize the supernatural, God moving in supernatural ways, oftentimes in the church, what comes to our mind are miracles and signs and wonders. And the book of Acts actually has all of those things. We see God moving in the miraculous. We see God moving in signs and wonders. There's buildings that shake and there's mighty rushing winds and there's people that that actually are, are... put to death. The Spirit of God strikes them. I mean, it's heavy. We'll see that in chapter 5. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the, a careful study through the book of Acts, what you'll find are 30, about 30 miracles, 30 supernatural signs and wonders that are done. Now, what's interesting about that is the book of Acts comprises a time period of 30 years. Now, you could go home today, read the book of Acts. I encourage you to do that. You could read it in one sitting about 30 minutes, and it would feel like as you're reading it, like every other page, there's something miraculous and something, you know, some sign and wonder that's taking place. But in reality, it's 30 miracles over a period of 30 years. Now, were there more things that were done than that? Oh, absolutely. We'll read in several places where it says, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. But I point this out because the Lord only emphasizes 30 of them. It's like the Lord gives us one miracle or one supernatural wonder a year in the book of Acts. Why is that? Because miracles and signs and wonders are not the focus. The focus is Jesus. 
The focus is the preaching of Jesus. The focus is the word of God, the message of Jesus going through to impact the known world at that time and to see lost people come into relationship with Jesus Christ. So we'll see. It's a book of supernatural power. The book of Acts also presents for us a manual. It's a manual of church principles and conduct. It's a manual that tells us how the church, how we as believers should live and how we should act and how we should minister. And I mentioned this before that so much of what we do here in our church is taken from what we see in the book of Acts. For instance, the way we study the Bible is taken from what we see in the book of Acts. The emphasis that we place on being led by the Holy Spirit and being dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and for that reason, being dependent upon prayer is because of what we see in the book of Acts. Our emphasis on worship and fellowship and building community is because of what we see in the book of Acts. Our whole approach to missions and church planting is because of what we see laid out for us as an example in the book of Acts. Our whole desire as a church to come alongside other churches and encourage them is because of what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, this week, and I encourage you to pray for me if you would, I'm going to be meeting with seven pastors from different parts of the country. They're coming here to California, and we're going to be meeting at a house that some people in our church own. And the whole purpose of it, these are all guys, younger guys who have been pastors, senior pastors for 10 years or less. And the focus is myself and a friend of mine, Ed Taylor, we're going to spend a week of just pouring into these guys and seeking to build them up and encourage them. And we've told them all they need to do is get here and our church, we're going to pay for the rest. We're paying for the food and all of that that's happening. And, and the heart of it is we we feel like, we always say this, we've been blessed to be a blessing. And my, I'm, I'm planning on meeting with this same group of seven guys three more times over the course of the next year to just encourage them. And we feel like by impacting these seven pastors, it's going to allow us as a church to impact seven churches. But we, the whole model in doing that is taken from what we see in the book of Acts. The whole way that we approach our relationship to government as Christians is because of what we see in the book of Acts. Our view of eschatology, that's end time events, is taken from what we see in the book of Acts. So it's a manual. The book of Acts, I think, is also going to present for all of us a challenge. Because in the book of Acts, we are going to see the early church. And how they functioned. We're going to see what their priorities were. We're going to see how they live. And it should challenge us. It should wake us up. It should make us come to question, hey, are we following Jesus in that same type of way? So it is going to be a challenge for us. And I believe that this study has the potential to radically change our lives as individuals and as a church. And I don't know about you, but I am ready to see and have God bring another Jesus people movement. Are you with me? That's what we need, right? That's what this world, that's what our state, that's what our city, that's what, what it needs is God to pour out his spirit again. But listen, you know where it starts? Right here. 
It starts in my heart. It starts in your heart. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. Let's begin, beginning here in verse 1. We're going to just cover verses 1 through 3 today, a little introduction. We read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day that he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Pause there and give me your attention. So who's writing this? Well, the author of the book of of Acts is Luke, the same one who wrote the gospel of Luke. And it's interesting, Luke is the only Gentile author in the Bible. Historians tell us that he was a Syrian who had come from Antioch, and from his exacting use of the Greek language, we learn that that Luke was a very intelligent man, and in Colossians chapter 4, it actually tells us that he was a doctor, probably trained in the schools there in Alexandria or in Athens. Now, understand though, physicians in the Roman culture didn't have the same type of prestige that they have today in our culture. They were actually considered hired servants of the elite. Some of them were actually slaves. And so there's a good chance that that Luke was either a hired servant or he might have even been a slave. And who was he a slave to? I think we get the answer to that when, when who this letter was addressed to. Though this letter was addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus. Everybody say Theophilus. His name means beloved of God. And he's the same person that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke to. In fact, I want to look, it'll be on the screen, Luke's introduction there in Luke chapter 1. He wrote this, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were entrusted. So his first letter was written to Theophilus, and in that first letter, the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, I set out to give you an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we appreciate this about Luke. Luke was an orderly guy. It probably was part of his doctor training. He was into details. And so we see that in the way that he writes. But I want you to notice there in Luke 1 verse 3 that he refers to Theophilus as the most excellent Theophilus. But here in the book of Acts, he just calls him Theophilus. Why the change? Well, some have given their opinion. Some think that the reason why there's a change is because Luke was no longer Theophilus' servant. See, most people believe that Luke was the hired physician, the personal physician of Theophilus and his family. 
But they believe that at some point that changed and he was no longer in that relationship. And so that's the reason why Luke just refers to him as Theophilus. But I don't think that makes a lot of sense because that would be kind of a sign of disrespect for him to, you know, in the same way today when we encounter a president, you know, we don't just say, hey, George, you know, we call him Mr. President, you know, when we're talking about one of our presidents. So in the same way in that culture, that's how they referred to officials. Paul referred to the governors Festus and Felix in that same way, a most excellent or most, yeah, most excellent Festus and, and uh, Felix, he called them. So some think that, you know, Luke's just feeling like, hey, I don't need to show this guy respect. But I, I don't think, you know, his heart and following the Lord that that really makes sense. I think what makes better sense is that Theophilus had come to know Christ. And so he no longer saw Luke as lower than him, but he saw him as a brother in Christ. And so I think it was Theophilus who said, hey, just call me Theophilus. In fact, many believe that Theophilus actually commissioned uh, Luke to become Paul the Apostle's personal assistant. And boy, did Paul need one, right? All the things that he was going through, that he became his personal physician along the way. But here's what I want you to catch that I find very interesting. Both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that are being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are directed to one person, one man, Theophilus. I find that ironic. And I want you just to think about this. When Luke is writing these letters to his friend Theophilus, he has no idea that these are going to end up in the New Testament. It's not like he's writing. The New Testament didn't even exist at that time. He's not writing thinking, okay, this is going to end up in the Bible someday. He's just writing to his friend. And through his writings, his friend's life was impacted, and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think this emphasizes for us the amount of importance that God places on one person, just one. You know, I have had the privilege as a pastor And in missionary journeys around the world, I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel to thousands of people at one time. It happens every year at Easter when we meet over in the amphitheater. Wonderful privilege and opportunity to do that. I was once in Kaluga, Russia. And the last night of the outreaches we were doing there, there were 2,500 people packed into this auditorium. And that night I was uh, giving the gospel message through an interpreter And we got to the end and I gave the invitation. I said, if you're here tonight and you're ready to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, I want you to stand up. And I'm not kidding you. All 2,500 people stood. I looked at the interpreter and I was like, what did you say to them? I'm like, did you tell, who wants a hundred dollars? Stand up, you know? God doing work. And I'm not saying that for you to go, wow, that's amazing. I'm I'm saying that to say that has been my calling as a pastor. That's what I have, have been called and I have to be faithful to to present the gospel in those type of settings. But you know, all of us here, we have a calling to present the gospel. Most of you here will probably never preach the gospel to thousands of people, but you are called to preach the gospel to that one neighbor across the street, that one guy or gal across the hall at your work, 
that one person across the coffee shop at Starbucks. And I'll tell you this, it's easier to preach the gospel to thousands of people at one time. It is. You know why? They've all come wanting to hear something. They're a captive audience. You know what's harder? Harder is, is looking for those opportunities and trying to make those opportunities to preach to the one. I'm called to do that as well. It's easier to get up in front of a, a crowd of people like this and share the word of God, but it's a lot harder to look for those opportunities and make those opportunities and build relationships and earn the trust of people so that they'll listen to what we have to say. But that is what we are called to. And our lives, if we allow God to use us, can make an impact on one. There was a missionary doctor ministering out in the bush in China. And one particular day, there was a Chinese man who was blind who came to see him. And the doctor ended up performing a cataract surgery on his eyes. And it made it where this man who was blind could see. Well, a couple days later, this doctor is sitting there in his little, you know, bamboo hut, and he's looking out the window, and all of a sudden he sees this Chinese man that had just received his sight coming. He's holding a rope in his hand, and behind him are six other men holding the rope, walking in single file. They were all blinds. And they had come because they wanted to meet this doctor who had performed a surgery that had given their friend back his sight. Now that Chinese man who was blind, he couldn't you know, talk about physiology and the intricacies of, of the eyeball or even the intricacies of that, that surgery. But all he could say to his friend was, I was blind and now I can see. And that was enough. His friends were like, we got to meet this guy. And so they came. They wanted to meet him too. And I think that's a great picture of us. You see, you may not be able to talk about all the intricacies of theology. There's not a lot of theologians here. I'm certainly not one. You may not be able to talk about the mysteries of, of, of the, the Word of God or that we see in the Word of God. And, and let's be honest, I don't think any of us are living perfect Christian lives. But you know what we do have? We have the story. I was lost and now I'm bound. I was blind and now I see. We have our lives and our testimonies that we can share with people around us. And that one of the things I love to do when I meet somebody is I'll ask them, what's your story? And oftentimes they'll tell me, you know, I was born here. I did this. I came here. And, and then you know what they usually do? Well, what's your story? And that's my opportunity to tell them, well, you know what? My story is kind of interesting because I probably wouldn't even be here today if it wasn't for Jesus. And this is what he's done in my life and through my life. And he did that because he loves me and he loves you too. And it gives a great opportunity for us to share our faith. Guys, this is what we need to remember is the one is important. To God. I want you to notice the intro again. Luke writes, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Notice that word, the key word there is began. We could say that Luke is volume one. 
And in volume one, Luke is telling us what Jesus began to do in his earthly ministry when he was here on earth in his physical body. That's volume one. The book of Acts is volume two. And in the book of Acts, don't miss this, the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do here on planet earth, not in his physical body, but through his mystical body, the church. Believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are following him. Him working in and through our lives. And so the point is that the work of Jesus is not static. It continues on. In fact, we could say the book of Acts, it's still being written today. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, it's interesting. It ends kind of abruptly there in chapter 28. It ends with Paul. The apostle in prison. It's like a cliffhanger. It's like we're left with Paul. He's in prison. And why does it end that way? I think it ends that way on purpose. Because it's God's way of saying, hey, this isn't the, the story doesn't end here. This isn't the end of the story. In fact, there was a church planting movement that started several years ago that called themselves Acts 29. And I love that idea because that's really what's happening. That's what's happening today in your life, in my life, and through our lives, that you are a part of Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 31. The story is continuing to be written because God is still on the move. Amen? Amen. Jesus is still working in our world today. And the Holy Spirit is still seeking to work through the lives of people like you and I, his church. And listen, listen. This building at 885 East Vista Way, this is not the church. You're the church. You're the family of God. That's here a part of Calvary Vista. And when we gather together here, we call this, I'm going to church. You know what this is? This is the huddle. We're gathering together, and today's the huddle where we're, you know, we get charged up and we put our focus on the Lord. But you know what the game is? The game is tomorrow. When you head off to work, the game is tomorrow. When you head off to school, the game is later this afternoon. When you head into your neighborhood and God is wanting to work through our lives in that way. Let me conclude today. This is a couple more minutes. What made the early church so powerful? I think we see the answer, a big answer to this in verse three. Look at it again. He says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, he's speaking here of Jesus, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What made the early church so impactful? Two things. One was their belief in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the starting point. And the second thing was their dependency upon the Holy Spirit. But you got to understand, and I want you to catch this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to everything. It's why Paul the Apostle would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, he would say, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. If Jesus hasn't risen again from the dead, guys, there's no point in us being here. There's no, these songs are worthless that we're singing today. We might as well be home watching football today, you know? There's no point in this. 
There's no point in us living our lives the way that we do if Jesus hasn't risen again from the dead. But here's the reality. Here's what radically changed these guys. They saw Jesus being brutally beaten. And then they saw him being nailed to a cross. They saw a Roman soldier come and thrust a spear through his side, piercing his heart. They watched him die and breathe his last and cry out, it's finished. God, hears my spirit. They saw him taken off of that cross and put in a tomb. And they watched as they rolled a several, two or three or four ton rock, stone, in front of the tomb put the seal of Rome across it, that if anybody were to break that seal, they would be killed. And then they saw these Roman soldiers placed outside of this tomb to guard it so that no one could come and disrupt it. But three days later, they saw Jesus alive. He saw, they saw him risen from the dead. And notice in verse 3 when it says, he presented himself alive. The word presented means that he came and he placed himself beside them. He came and stood right beside them. He's like, guys, check me out. That's the idea. When it says that, they, that, that he was seen by them, the word seen there is the Greek word from which we get our English word ophthalmologist from that speaks of an eye doctor. It literally means they eyeballed him. I love that picture. It's like their eyes are popping out and they're like, is that really you? You know? They eyeballed, they scrutinized him. Luke said that it was through many infallible proofs that they came to believe this. Well, part of those infallible proofs was that they saw him, they touched him. They're reaching out, and it's like, this isn't a ghost. This is flesh and blood. They're eating with him. In fact, I love the way that John describes the whole thing in his epistle in 1 John chapter 1. I'll read it to you. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. They're like, this has changed our life, and we want you to be part of it. We want you to have the joy that we have experienced in coming to discover that Jesus is alive, that he's the real deal. Because the resurrection means that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And who did he claim to be? God in human flesh, the only way to the Father, He claimed that he was coming to die on the cross to pay the price of the sins of all humanity. And three days later, he was going to rise again from the dead. And that's exactly what he did. And the fact of the resurrection proves that when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, that that, it proves that that's exactly who he was. And by the way, John 14, 6, that, that's an absolute statement. And we live in a world that likes to say there are no absolutes. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm a way. 
I'm a truth. You can have life in me. He says, no, 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 no. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He presented himself to Mary Magdalene outside on on resurrection morning, outside the tomb. He presented himself to the 11 disciples. He presented himself to Cephas alone, where, where that's Peter, where he's probably telling Peter about his denial, like, Peter, I forgive you. He presents himself to 500 people at one time. He presents himself to this guy named Saul of Tarsus who was a maniac, a religious zealot, who wanted to single-handedly put down and crush Christianity and the followers of Christ. And and he, Jesus presents himself to him. We'll see this in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. And this guy, Saul of Tarsus, ends up getting his eyes open, believes in Jesus, and he becomes the the greatest spokesman for Jesus that the world has ever seen. But you know what? His following of Jesus, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his religious status. And eventually, he would lose his life. But Paul the apostle, he would do all of that because he wouldn't deny that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The resurrection, guys, it's the key. It's the key to everything. In fact, I would say this, we don't believe in the Bible, or excuse me, we don't believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells us so, that it's true. We believe in the Bible because the resurrection is true. You see, it's the key. There's an empty tomb in Israel today. And no one has been able to give a logical explanation for why that tomb is empty. People have tried. You know, the first argument that people had was, well, the disciples, this is what happened. They went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. This whole thing that started and spread all over the world was a mistake because these guys went to the wrong tomb. And all you got to do is produce the right tomb, right? Open it up and pull out the body. It wasn't the wrong tomb. And then there are those who say, well, you know what really happened? They call it the swoon theory. This is the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he passed out. And when they took him off of the cross and they put him in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him. This is after his body's been brutally beaten, thrust through in the side with a spear, hanging for six hours, bleeding out. And they say that somehow he was able to, all by himself, move aside a several ton stone, fight off some Roman guards, and then he wandered off somewhere and died and no one ever found the body. That's the swoon theory. People actually believe this. In fact, there was a, somebody that wrote to an advice columnist and said, my pro- college professor said that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. And he, he said, you know, he, he told us about the swoon theory. What do you think? And the advice columnist wrote back and said this. Let's take your college professor and beat him senseless while blindfolded. <laughs> we'll beat him with a Roman whip that has glass and rock shards in it until his body is completely ripped to shreds. And then we'll nail him to a cross for six hours and watch him bleed. 
And then we'll take a spear and stick it through his heart. And then we'll put him in a cave, put a three-ton stone over it, and put some guards outside, and let's see what happens. (laughs) I love it. And then there's this theory, that the disciples made this whole thing up. People say that. That was the first thing, is they say the disciples stole the body. That was the first argument. Now, to believe that, you have to come to the conclusion that the Roman soldiers fell asleep, which was a crime punishable by death, that the disciples who were cowards and ran away when Jesus was arrested somehow mustered up the courage to go against 16 Roman guards, Rome's finest, like the Navy SEALs of today. And then they conspired after that to lie and tell this story that Jesus was risen. Now, if you believe that, just think about this, okay? These guys didn't become popular because of a lie like that. They actually became hated by the world and hunted. And every single one of them would end up being tortured. And all they had to do to not be tortured and then eventually martyred and killed was say, It's a lie! Jesus didn't really rise again from the dead. We made this all up, but none of them did that. And here's the record. The first disciple that was killed, we'll see this in the book of Acts, was James. He was beheaded. Peter ends up being crucified upside down. Bartholomew was crucified upside down in Albania, so he's far away. If there was ever a chance for someone to go, hey, I made this all up, and please, it's those crazy friends of mine. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified. Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus were both crucified. Philip was shot full of arrows. Matthew was skinned alive in Iran. Think about that. They start peeling away layers of skin. All you got to do is say, Jesus isn't alive. Not doing it. Can't do it. Because he is alive. He is risen from the dead. Thomas was pierced through with spears. James the less was stoned, that's with rocks, and clubbed to death. And John, they boiled him in oil, and he didn't die. (laughs) So they banished him to the island of Patmos. And all they had to do to avoid that torture and being killed was to admit Jesus is not risen, and not one of them caved in. Now, if you think it's possible that all of them and many followers after them could do that and not cave in to hold fast to a lie, I've got some, if you believe that's possible, I have some beachfront property in Ohio I'd love to sell you, okay? It's crazy, right? Listen, the resurrection is the key to everything. This is what was started. These guys were impacted because they saw him die. They saw him raise again from the dead. And they followed him with all of their hearts. And the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out of the, the, the tomb. It was rolled away to let the skeptics in. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to face this fact. There's an empty tomb. And you need to have an answer for why. 
You see, you can't be neutral on Jesus. Some people say, well, I like, I like Jesus. He's cool, but I'm not, I don't follow him. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. It's that simple. And he's risen and he's alive. He fulfilled the promise that he was going to die and raise again from the dead. And that means that we can believe the promise that he also gave that one day he's going to come back again. He's going to set up his kingdom here on planet Earth. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we know him? Are we following him? And if we don't, are we ready to meet him? And if you don't, I want to encourage you to open up your heart today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reality that your son Jesus is risen from the dead. That he is alive and he wants to be alive in us. God, we pray that you would do a work in us. A fresh work in us. As a church body, as individuals, as we study the book of Acts. But Lord, I pray right now for anybody here in this place or anybody watching online who doesn't have that relationship with Jesus. That today, they would open up their hearts. And just as we stay in this attitude right now of of prayer, I just want to say that if you're here today and you you don't know Jesus, you haven't opened up your heart to Jesus, and and you want to, you're realizing he, He did die for my sins, and He did rise again from the dead. He is alive, and I want Him to be alive in me. If that's your heart, I want you right now, just the quietness of your heart, to repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I give you my heart. I confess that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. And so I'm asking you today to forgive me. I believe that you died and rose again, that you are alive. And I want you to be alive in me. And so from this day forward, I want to follow you with all of my heart. As we remain in this attitude of prayer, heads bowed and eyes closed, listen. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So if you just prayed that prayer today to open up your heart to Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now, very simple way, to just acknowledge that and confess that by lifting up your hand. Lift it up high where I can see it. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you guys. God bless you gals. Welcome to the family of God. Jesus loves you. And he wants to do a work in you. And this is just the beginning. As you begin to follow him. But you know, I I think that There's going to be three other types of people here today. I think there's some here today that you're carnal in your walk with the Lord. Maybe one day at one time you were on fire for the Lord. But now you've kind of been living with one foot in the Lord and one foot in the world. 
and you're miserable. Because you've got too much of Jesus to really enjoy the world, and that you've got too much of the world to really enjoy Jesus. And I just want to say, are you ready to be done with that life today? Are you ready to be done with just that mentality today and turn from your sin and just give yourself fully to Jesus? I want to encourage you to do that today. I think there's also some of some here today that you're complacent. You know the Lord. You're happy that you're saved. But you're just kind of existing in life, not really looking to make any kind of impact. Just kind of like, I'm glad I'm saved. Lord, I hope you come back soon. But you're, but you're not all in. And Jesus wants you to be all in. He doesn't want us to be complacent. He wants us to be on fire. And if that's you today, I just want to encourage you to tell the Lord that and tell him, Lord, I want you to work through my life. And I'm sure there's others here today that you are just on fire and you love Jesus and you're serving him with your life and that is awesome. But listen, God wants us to continue running hard after him. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time right now in worship, about 10 minutes, just responding to this, just bringing our hearts before the Lord before we run out of here. And I just want to encourage you right now, if you need prayer, there's folks up front here, or there will be part of our prayer team. They'd love to pray for you. But maybe you're in that place where you're struggling with incarnality or complacency and you just need to surrender yourself to the Lord. I just want to invite you to come. This carpet down here is padded. Come and kneel before the Lord in an act of worship. But for, the, for all of us, let's take this moment to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your next movement. And I want it to begin right now in my heart. I want it to begin in my life. And let's just take this moment to be real with him, to say, Lord, take all of me. Take all of us as we worship the Lord together.